Good morning, Grace Church. What a joy it is to be able to be here together today to worship and come before our Lord and expect that he would hear and answer our prayers. This morning, we want to just greet you in the Lord and encourage you to worship with us. Uh, if you are new to Grace Church, we especially want to remind you or uh, tell you that uh, there's opportunity for you to get connected in every way you can. So we would uh, encourage you to check out our QR codes around the campus. If you click on those, you can um, introduce yourself and we can make contact with you that way also. But above all, we want to be reminded that we are a Christ-centered church intent on proclaiming the gospel of Christ, making disciples and sacrificially serving our Lord Jesus in every way that we can in this place. And this morning, we want to also let you know that uh, there are new GCO, Grace Church of Orange signs, yard signs, that uh, are available to you, and they have our new service times on them. So you want to pick those up there uh, right here in the plaza area, and you can grab one of those as you leave today. And also, just to uh, let you know that our podcast and blog are available on our graceorange.com website, so you can check under resources and find them there. And also a reminder, or let you know maybe for the first time, that Grace Bible Institute is coming up in two weeks, October 25th. So please make note of that, and uh, you will be blessed by that. And then finally, uh, Operation Christmas Child is going to be happening once again here at Grace Church. And you want to see Susan Liu at the table in the plaza area and ask her how you can be involved. So this morning we want to read from Psalm 111, Psalm 111, and we're going to be reading through verses 1 through 4. So if you would, stand with me as we read God's Word. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Lord, we're grateful that indeed you hear our prayers and our hearts, Lord, are strengthened by the power of your word and the work of your spirit within us. So we praise you this morning and we seek to praise you through song and through our words and through the very thoughts of our hearts. So purify us today for worship before your holy throne. We're eager and hungry, Lord, to hear your word. So draw us to yourself by your spirit, humble our pride and help us to see, Lord, the glory of your word and the glory of your Christ, we ask in his name. Amen.
chapter 6. If you'll turn there in your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that, is, that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest. It finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place? You may be seated. This morning we want to be praying for especially our missionaries that we're privileged to support, Tom and Marianne Barlow, who serve in a church planting ministry in Birmingham, England. So join with me as we pray. Lord, we're grateful for your grace and mercy, for your faithfulness that we've just sung about. Lord, as we look around us and we examine our lives, we see that your hand is upon us. And Lord, you have granted us grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy every day of our lives. So we praise you, Lord, and we thank you this morning for that which you've accomplished in our lives. And we are eager, Lord, to see that which you have for us even this morning as we come to worship your holy name. You and you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and majesty and power and authority. Lord, we ask this morning as we come before you that you would open our eyes and our ears that we might hear and receive and see that which you have for us. Lord, we pray that you would purify our hearts now. Cause us to come before your holy throne of people that are prepared to worship you. Cleanse us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we confess before you this morning our, our sins, that which is so evident in our lives and we fall so far short of your glory. And yet, Lord, you have told us if we, are, if we confess our sins that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, we acknowledge that this morning before you. So we pray, Lord, now as we, as we worship you today that you would cause our hearts to rejoice and that we might find true and lasting blessing in the reality of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we 
We want to pray this morning especially for Tom and Marianne Barlow as they labor unceasingly and faithfully these many years in Birmingham. Lord, as they desire to plant your word in the hearts of people and then plant churches that would be shining lights for your glory in these dark places. Lord, we pray that you would empower Tom and Marianne, give them strength, endurance, and joy in ministry and fruit, Lord, for your purpose and your glory. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. May all that we do, all that we think, all that we say, all that we sing, in the hearing of your word, we pray would be pleasing in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus, it is to you that we turn our eyes. We want to see you. We want to know you. And we want that to happen more clearly and more fully than it ever has. God, would you open our eyes, even this morning as we open your word, God, as we hear from it, would you open blind eyes to see you for the first time? And God, would you open our eyes even wider to see more of you? We ask this all, we pray this by the blood and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A famous 1514 painting uh, by Renaissance artist Quentin Mattis entitled The Moneylender and His Wife confronts us with a choice that we all must make between God and riches. In this painting, uh, the moneylender is sitting there at a table with a huge pile of money in front of him. He's got a measuring scale there and he is carefully assessing the value of a single coin. And he is looking at that coin very intently. Now his wife is sitting beside him. And she is leafing through a Bible. But the interesting thing is her eyes are captivated by the coin in his hand. Matsis was making a point. In Antwerp, his adopted city that become the world center of trade and commerce at that time. And he saw how easily money could pull a soul away from worshiping God. Uh, and there were many 15th century uh, European artists that were painting everyday scenes like this to uh, condemn sin and to remind people of how short life is and how frail life is. The painting had these these uh, sobering symbolic figures in it. Uh, there was shiny gold and pearls uh, that basically uh, symbolized the distractions from the word of God and fruit was on a shelf and it symbolized our sin. And then there was on the shelf a snuffed out candle that was symbolizing that we would all return to dust, that everyone dies. Quite a sobering picture if you think about it. And now we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and we come to quite the sobering passage of Scripture. It describes the person that chooses riches and that refuses to acknowledge God as well as his good gifts. It results in a very tragic, tragic circumstance. And so in intensely provocative terms, Solomon literally says, better off to be dead. You're better off dead. And, and while he makes this statement in the process, he makes a positively compelling case for living fully given over and devoted to Christ. Solomon's startling statement prompts all sorts of questions. Like, wait a minute. You just said miscarriage. Why is a miscarriage 
better than a mismanaged, ungodly, you know, God-spurning life. What can we do about it? What can we learn from this, this heavy burden that is upon all of us? And Solomon gives a painful truth. But he does so so that we would live a joyful life. That we would actually remember, as we live in light of dying, that only God knows, and that only God satisfies, and that only God is sovereign. He's already hit on the role of wealth in life. And last week we saw how enjoying God's gifts gives relief even from life's troubles. But now, in these first six verses of chapter six, he is telling quite soberly why a miscarriage is better than a self-centered life. He uses one of the most painful things for a parent to endure. He is saying merciful death is better than a mangled life, a misused life, a life that, that rejects God. Because apart from God, there is no joy, there is no rest, there is no life. There's no enjoyment or satisfaction. Begin with me at verse 1. He starts by saying, there is an evil, a misery. And I have seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes under the sun. And it's lying heavy on mankind. It's prevalent. It's a burden. It's a weight. It, it presses heavy upon us. It's distressing. One writer put it this way. It's damaging to any rosy picture of the world. And he proceeds to give us three really obvious truths about ungodly, restless people. Why they have no enjoyment or satisfaction in the midst of, of a full life, how they can just live not acknowledging God. And the first thing he says is, this happens while they have many possessions. They have no enjoyment or no satisfaction, even while having many possessions. It's this underappreciated abundance. Look at verse 2. He describes the person. He says, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing at all. Everything he needs, everything he wants, he has. Everything he desires, everything he craves, he has. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them. He does not fear or acknowledge God, and God does not give him power to enjoy what God gives. No, instead, a stranger enjoys all of his stuff. This is in stark contrast to what we saw last week. In, in verse 19, in chapter 5, it says, Everyone whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot, rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. The acknowledged gift of God from a God-fearer, where you see God in all his goodness and receive his good gifts as gifts, not to be worshipped, but to be used in his service. But how easy it is for us to take God's good gifts for granted and, and not acknowledge God. Like men of the world, Psalm 17 says, whose portion is in this life. They spend their days in prosperity, Job 21 says. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? What profit do we get if we pray to him? 
And so to this type of person, God does not give the power to enjoy his good gifts. Literally, he does not cause him to have ability to eat of it. You can amass the largest fortune imaginable on earth, and apart from God's sovereign enablement, you will be powerless to enjoy it. You possess the world and die unlamented and unfulfilled. The psalmist put it this way, for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth, he does not know who will gather it. You're not going to your estate sale. And then he says this, this is vanity. Here's the common refrain in Ecclesiastes. The word is habel again, futility, vapor, breath, brief. It's vanity, it is grievous, it's severe. It's an evil, it's a sickness, it's an affliction. You have no enjoyment or satisfaction while having many possessions. A lot of people are like that. A lot of people are living like that every day. Well, next, Solomon launches into hyperbole to the nth degree in, in verse, in verse um, 3. And he says this, Now, the person has no enjoyment, no satisfaction while raising many kids. He says, verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children. Now, there are people that have fathered a hundred children. There's guys who've done that. I mean, and in the Bible, you see a lot of kids. You see Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. You see Rehoboam fathered 28 sons and 60 daughters. 88 kids. <laughs> Let that sink in for a moment. A lot of diapers to change. A lot of mouths to feed. A lot of driving lessons. <laughs> Little donkey riding lessons. Psalm 127 tells us, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who is, whose quiver is full of them, but there are people with no enjoyment and no satisfaction while having many possessions and having many kids. They want to complain about it. Well, my stuff is such a burden and my kids are such a burden. And then he gives a third reason. It's, it's in verse 3 as well. It lives many years. So they have no enjoyment, no satisfaction, having many possessions, uh, having, raising many kids, and while living many years. He says in verse 3, living many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul isn't satisfied. His soul is not satisfied with life, life's good things, the benefits. And to top it all off, he has no burial. No one goes to his funeral. He doesn't even have one. In those days, if you improperly treated a corpse, it was a dishonor. It was a curse. Burial, even, even as now, but back then, it was a significant responsibility for the living to take care of the dead. But he has no burial. His soul's unsatisfied. He never has enough, and no one goes to his funeral. What a sad story. Like Jehoram in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles, he died with no one's regret. No one was sad that he died. He was unlamented. No one's sorry. The restless, godless person finds no enjoyment or satisfaction while having many possessions, raising many kids, having many years, living many years. And so Solomon then, you know, brings up this, this, this painfully intense Comparison. And he says in verse 3, a stillborn child is better off. 
miscarriage. One of the most painful events in a parent's life. Many of you have experienced this. Even someone in first hour today, this is the 32nd anniversary of their child living but a few days. Solomon is saying, miscarriage is better than a godless life. That's hard for us to wrap our, our hearts around, isn't it? I mean, no one lives shorter than miscarriage. We don't talk about things like this. He uses the most intense statement to emphasize how agonizing it is to live life apart from God, without God. The constant striving, and stressing, never satisfied. He says far better to live very short as a miscarriage. Job said a similar thing. He's going through his pain. And he says, why was I not a hidden, stillborn child? Why was I not an infant that doesn't see the light? He's, he's pained inside. Probably wasn't the best thing for him to say at that moment. The psalmist, Psalm 58 says, in precatory psalm, let them be like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. But Solomon, he's saying, it's better, it's better to be the miscarriage than to be the person who is living ungodly and pushing God away. It is a uh, provocative statement to be sure. It, it is a true statement. As painful as it is for us to process this, it is a true statement. And, and it helps us realize without a proper understanding of God as preeminent and our true portion in life and the one who gives us the ability to, to enjoy his gifts, you're destined for a life of futile, agonizing striving. Better a little with the fear of God than abundance without him. It makes me thankful as a believer in the Lord Jesus to have been rescued by grace from such futility. I mean, it allows the believer to enjoy God as well as his gifts in this life. And, and then realize all the while, someday we're going to leave this globe. Someday we're going to leave this life. We're going to leave this world behind us at some time that only God knows. What's this passage saying to us? It's saying quite simply and painfully, a stillborn child is better off than a person who lives a long, seemingly full and prosperous life, but, are, but rejects God and, and doesn't acknowledge him and doesn't acknowledge his gifts. Just takes everything they get and is miserable in the process. And Solomon proceeds then to give three reasons to support his bold statement. It's like, let me tell you why what I just said is true. As painful as it is, this will help you live a joyful life. So let's go through it. Why, why miscarriage is better than a mismanaged, ungodly life. And the first reason he gives in verse 4 is that at the very least... The stillborn child avoids the misery of sin. Verse 4 tells us the child comes in vanity, quickly, goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. It doesn't endure a long life of misery and unfulfilled life. It comes in vanity, is gone as quickly in darkness, quickly 
obscurely, no memory remains. Maybe the child wasn't named. Maybe the child will not be recognized. Most likely the child will not be recognized. Most people didn't get to see the child ever. In Ecclesiastes 4.3, it says, Better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. See, merciful death is better than you know, spinning the treadmill of life and never getting an, a centimeter of satisfaction. It's going through the hamster wheel just over and over and over again and never enjoying life because you, acknowledge, you don't acknowledge God. And here's the miscarried child who doesn't see the light of day and is spared much misery. Those who miss the child go through real misery. But the child mercifully doesn't. This is the point that he's making. Doesn't see vanity, doesn't deal with pain, doesn't deal with heartache and sinful people and being burdened and bogged down with sin like so many of us. I mean, think of all the evil you've seen. Think of all the evil that you've seen, all the violent images that you have observed, all the atrocities that you have watched, the horrifying things that are, that are soul-deadening and get us calloused in our hearts and cauterized to, to people's pain. Think of all the sins you've committed. If they were counted up, they would be a burden too much for any of us to bear. A weight too heavy to bear. Praise God for mercy in Christ. Our sin is overwhelming. God's mercy is astounding. It's thrilling. But he says that the stillborn child avoids the misery of sin. It's true. And he comes up with a second reason. The stillborn child finds rest in God. Look at verse 5. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. Doesn't see the oppression, the injustice, doesn't deal with greed or hoarding. Knows no hardship, no futility, no striving, no sin. Only rest. Spared such pain. Spared much pain. Miscarriage happens more often than we talk about. Research suggests that up to 20% of medically confirmed pregnancies end in miscarriage, and 25 to 30% of all conceptions do not complete the 20th week. One in four people conceived die in the womb. In 2019, there were 2.4 million deaths worldwide of newborns. It was up to 5 million back in 1990. Children face the greatest risk of death in the first 28 days in the womb. Many believe the number is much higher since many miscarriages aren't reported. Just this year, six million children under five have died worldwide. And then, that doesn't count all the abortions. Just this year, up to today, 33 million pe kids, people, have been murdered in the womb. And people want to make politics out of the sanctity of life. It's legal in the United States of America to murder your baby. Can we grasp that? Many Christians just 
inexplicably defend that right. There are many unjust things in our society. Many, many unjust things. But this law gives legal protection to murder with, with no consequence except your guilt and pain. No Christian should stand for that. It's an issue of, of who God is and, and what he says about his image. From conception through the entire life. Solomon says that this miscarriage sees rest rather than the one who is striving and the one who is is pushing God away. It finds rest rather than he. Literally, it's, it's putting them both side by side and saying, this one has rest more than that one. This one has rest. This one doesn't. And the way it's worded here, it, the baby finds the rest immediately. Immediately. Safe in the arms of God. At rest. Unlike the godless that are living in turmoil. Better the rest of God than the striving of man. I want to say some words to bereaved parents. In pain, you can take comfort. You can take comfort in the truth. There's ample biblical evidence that children dying very young are ushered into God's presence. And think about it. Solomon is writing in a time when your lifespan could be just under a thousand years. And he refers to finding rest. That means to be in the presence of God. That means to be blessed by God because you are in his embrace. The rest of God. This is like Jesus saying, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The miscarriage enters a state of peace. John Newton Slave trader, become gospel preacher, wrote to some very close friends whose child died. And he said this, I hope you're both well reconciled to the death of your child. I cannot be sorry for the death of infants. How many storms do they escape? Nor can I doubt but that they are included in the election of grace. Jesus said, of such is the kingdom of heaven. John Calvin said it would be too cruel to exclude that age from the grace of redemption. Charles Spurgeon said the Lord Jesus daily and constantly receives into his loving arms those tender ones who are only shown and then snatched away to heaven. 19th century Presbyterian preacher Charles Hodge said heaven is in great measure composed of the souls of redeemed infants. You might say, well... If God's letting all babies into heaven, that's just grace. Absolutely. Sinful, guilty, depraved children who die with no spiritual merit, being welcomed by God into glory solely by grace, it's the only way to be saved. John MacArthur, when asked by Larry King in 2001, right after 9-11, what happens to a baby who dies, he had a moment to answer and he just said, Instant heaven. Instant heaven. This verse says so. Verse 5, it, it finds rest rather than he. Literally, more rest has this one than that one. 
Not some in-between, like, sort of restful, but the rest of God, where you are safe in the, in the hands of God. That tears our, it tears our hearts up to think about this. And then, then we think about life, and we think, you know, there's no guarantee of rest or peace in this life on this earth. Comfort. Job said, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Don't we know it? Many will will spend their entire life straining to find satisfaction and rest with no success. Don't live like that. The child who dies in the womb never knows that agonizing striving. Only the blessed rest of God. And only God knows But think with me for a moment of all the striving you've done in your life. Just in the last 24 hours, all the time lost worrying, every tiring day, every sleepless night, and every ounce of energy that you give to things that are going to burn. You lack peace and calm and this elusive rest. That explains the believer not, not in line with where God wants them to be. And it explains the unbeliever without God and without hope. The stillborn child avoids the misery of sin, finds rest in God. And then one more reason he gives. Third, at the very least, the stillborn child leaves nothing behind. Nothing to sell at a garage sale. In fact, verse 6 says, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, like double Methuselah, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the same place? The ungodly could live 2,000 years, more than double Methuselah, and have a long life with no enjoyment, and struggle every moment with no satisfaction, gather an immense fortune, and realize they can't take a single penny with them. You know those things we leave on the ground now? Because in the end, all go to the same place. He's not saying everyone goes to heaven. He's saying all die. Ecclesiastes 3.20, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust they return. Ecclesiastes 12.7, dust returns to the earth. As it was, the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And Solomon is saying, long life, unenjoyed, is futile. The burden is real. Better to never be born than live with all those unfulfilled cravings and part with all your treasures in the end. I mean, think with me for a moment of all the things that your heart is burdened for. The things that you've begged for and borrowed for and saved for and longed for and worried over. Piles of possessions that are heaped on floors and in garages and stuffed in closets and under beds. We have so much, and we want more. We want more. And here Solomon is talking about the godless person that finds no enjoyment or satisfaction, having many possessions, raising many kids, living many years, 
And that the, the stillborn child avoids the misery of sin and finds the rest of God and leaves nothing behind. No burden, no trouble. What is the point in all of this? What, what is he saying to us in this emphasis? He is not, he is not emphasizing miscarriage. He is not saying, well, a stillborn child is not such a bad thing. No, it is a terrible agony to lose a child? This is one of the most tragic events you can endure in life. One of the most tragic occurrences of life. But what he's saying is that the horrors of miscarriage, as painful as they are, are not as bad as the horrors of a life of vain striving. So awful it would be better to die in the womb than endure such agony. It points to your need for a true knowledge of God. It points to your need for God-given enjoyment of His good gifts in life. It points to your need to know Christ by faith. And it points to it in the strongest way possible. That apart from faith in Christ, you can never enjoy this world. It's like a car out of alignment or a body out of balance. Until Christ is in supreme position of preeminent value in your life, you are going to strive for satisfaction where it never was meant to be found. It's echoed in Job when he said that. Uh, why wasn't I just a stillborn child? He's crushed by the agony of his loss. He wonders why he was born. But you get sobering words from a God-fearer that shows how tragically painful life can be. Put no hope in this life. It's intensified by Jesus in the upper room. When he said this, he said, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas's sin was so bad it was better if he hadn't been. This is sobering. This is so sobering. The wrath on the unbelieving, unrepentant on the day of judgment would be so strong, they'd be better off never to have been born. All die. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. What I'm seeing in this passage is the biggest of contrast between the unbeliever who has nothing except in this life and is miserable and the believer who has hope beyond this life while going through misery looks towards joy and can even experience that joy now in part. It's like Paul says in Philippians 3, this is the contrast between the citizen of heaven, the citizen of heaven who is hungering for Christ and then the ungodly whose God is their belly and whose end is destruction. We know all in Adam die. And we also know that all in Christ live. You've got, on one hand, the misery and sinfulness and burden of selfish life, spurning God and pushing him away versus the freedom and the rest and the peace and the life and the easy yoke of Christ for those kept by God. Look to Christ. Look to Christ beyond this life. 
Look to Christ beyond this life because a life of striving without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is such an agonizing ordeal, it's better to be unborn. Praise God that all who are in Christ are reborn, born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, new life in Christ. If you're not a Christian today, you can have new life in Christ today. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe that he died for your sins on the cross in your place. He shed his blood to pay the penalty for your sins so that you wouldn't have to. And he was buried and he rose from the third day. He is coming back with blessing for all who believe and judgment on those who reject him. You know, there, in this passage, there's embedded really a, a double blessing for believers. Not only is every good gift from God, but the ability to enjoy those gifts is a gift from God. But instead of misery, you have mercy from God. Instead of striving, you have satisfaction in God. Instead of ruin, you have rest in God. This is the biblical truth. But it is distressing to see how many Professing Christians live unrecognizably miserable lives. Sometimes it's tough to distinguish from unbelievers. Yes, the inner reality of your faith is of most importance, but it will work its way out. They will know us by our love. They will know us by our love for one another. Every one of us needs to repent of every attempt we, we make to find joy outside of Christ. And we shouldn't be shocked by our sin. We shouldn't look around and be shocked by anyone's sin. We should be shocked by the mercy of God. What's shocking isn't our sin. What's shocking is the mercy of God. Apart from God's mercy to us in Christ, we have no ability to enjoy Him or His good gifts. We would, apart from Christ, we would look to God's gifts for satisfaction they were never meant to provide. And we would always be left empty. But praise God for a believer. We can enjoy him as our portion and be satisfied in him and enjoy the good gifts that he gives. There's a, a mini prayer at the end of 2 Thessalonians that can help us. 2 Thessalonians 3.5, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ praying that God would open all of our eyes daily to soul-satisfying gospel truths, that we would find true satisfaction in Christ. He said, I came that he might, they might have life and, and life to the full, not life drenched in everything you want, but life directed and determined by God. You live life to the full, trusting Christ in your heart, in your household, amongst the people of God, and, and in every holy, Christ-honoring activity that you can engage in. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I'm praying for you and I that we would find our true rest in Christ, that we would find our joy and our peace and our satisfaction in Christ alone. You truly are 
Better off dead in this life. Die to self. Live to God. Because there is no joy or peace or rest apart from Christ. Lord, we thank you that these things are true and that you thrill our souls with your gospel truth. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would find our satisfaction, our joy, our rest in, in you alone, even as we enjoy you in this life and even as we enjoy your good gifts. All to your praise and glory and your service. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. celebrate God's indescribable gift in Christ. Celebrate the joy we have in Christ. Once again, as Christians gathered, we get to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We get to remember our hope laid up in heaven. We get to remember Jesus died for our sins in our place. Jesus gave us this table to do on an ongoing basis because we tend to forget and that's why we are instructed to remember and do this in remembrance of him with joy. Uh, this is for believers. This is for believers to celebrate the goodness of God in their life and saving them. Jesus instituted this table the night that he was betrayed and he took bread and he broke it And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup.
where we're at theologically in this moment that we're all living in, as well as practically what that means. And so we wanted to put that in writing so that you could uh, digest that and uh, go ahead and check that out if you haven't seen it. Um, it's a, uh, a, good, a good statement of really what does the Bible say and, and how are we choosing to operate in this moment. And I want to close the service by reading a couple verses at the end of 2 Corinthians 13. It says this, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.